my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Hello Sydney podcast, a podcast for horror lovers where we discuss any and all things horror. It's me, your girl, and your host, Sydney. Tis the season of love and giving and feeling the Christmas spirit and also of probably the darkest and one of the most iconic horror movies ever made. So obviously we're talking about none other than Black Christmas today. So Black Christmas is usually referred to as one of the first slasher movies. It came out in 1974, which another iconic slasher movie came out in 1974. Do you know what it is? If you said Texas Chainsaw, you're absolutely right. Now, far before this, in 1960, we got Psycho and we got Peeping Tom. So usually those are referred to as the first horror slashers as well. But to me, I really think Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw set the tone for what a slasher is supposed to be. It kind of made the whole setup and the final girl trope. And frankly, I don't really think Black Christmas 1974 gets enough respect when we're talking about iconic slashers, so that's why we're doing this episode. Black Christmas was literally the direct inspiration for Halloween 1978, so if it weren't for this movie, we wouldn't have Michael Myers and we wouldn't have quite a few slashers that came after him. So we're going to get into a full breakdown of this movie and also discuss a bit about its legacy. So let's just jump right into it. So this movie starts, uh, we get a view of a house and turns out that it's a sorority house. And we get a POV and it's just this like creepy breathing and we see that somebody very obviously is stalking the outside of the house. And then the front door is just left wide open, lol, the 70s. So we see there's a Christmas party going on and then we continue to get the POV and now we see somebody climbing up the side of the house and they physically get into the house and crawl up to the attic. So now we know that there's already an intruder inside. Fun fact, an alternative title to this movie is Stranger in the House, which I think is super lame and Black Christmas is much better. So again, unbeknownst to everybody downstairs, the stranger is now in the house. Everybody's drinking, having a good time. We're meeting some of the girls, including Barb, who's my personal favorite, played by Margot Kidder. So the sorority girls end up kicking everybody out of the house, party's over, whatever, and then the phone starts ringing. The phone starts ringing and one of the girls, Jess, who is played by Olivia Hussey, and she's going to be our main character here. She answers the phone and she shouts to everybody. She says, it's him again, the moaner. So obviously we, the audience, learn that this is a trend. So she answers the phone and all the other girls are standing around her and listening. And this person is just saying like the most vile and heinous things. So this individual is making like moaning sounds and choking sounds and then starts saying like, you pig cunt, let me lick it, like just vulgar shit, especially for the 70s. I can't imagine how people must have felt watching this at the time. It's like, this is the year after The Exorcist came out too. So movies were just fucking wiling out at this time. So my girl Barb, who's just a boss ass bitch, gets on the phone and starts threatening him. But then he turns around on her and just says, I'm going to kill you and hangs up. And then we hear Claire, who's another one of the girls, say, you shouldn't provoke him because there was a girl that was raped a couple weeks ago and like, this might be the guy that did it. Claire and Barb kind of get into a little argument, a little spat, nothing crazy, and Claire gets upset and goes upstairs to go pack because her father's coming to pick her up to go home for Christmas. After she goes upstairs, we're then introduced to Mrs. Mack, who is the house mother, and this woman is just an absolute fucking riot. She's honestly, like, what I aspire to be in my older age. Like, this woman's just got bottles of alcohol hidden all throughout the house. Like, she's just an absolute fucking riot. So the girls are all downstairs talking to Mrs. Mack and she's showing them like some new clothes that she just bought and over the commotion they can't hear what's going on upstairs but we see it and basically Claire's going to pack her stuff and we see that there is a figure, a man we assume, hiding in her closet but she does not see him. 
or at least she doesn't see it until it's too late because she goes into the closet and is attacked and suffocated by this unseen assailant. So again, nobody downstairs hears this and they all go about their business and we see the killer now going upstairs into the attic. Meanwhile, downstairs, Jess gets a phone call from her boyfriend, Peter, and she's telling Peter that she needs to talk to him in person, like she has something important to tell him. Um, You can tell it's obviously kind of tense, and then Peter tells her, I love you, and she just says, I know. Ouch, that fucking hurts. So Jess at this point goes upstairs to look for Claire, but obviously doesn't find her because we now know that Claire is dead, but then we see an image of Claire's body in the attic and we hear somebody singing this like creepy-ass lullaby to her. And Claire in the attic is where we get that iconic image from the cover of this movie of her dead body with like the plastic wrap on her head. But again, nobody knows that she's up there and everybody goes to bed. So then we get to the next morning and we get a shot of a man. And this man turns out to be Claire's father who was waiting for her to pick her up. And she never shows up, obviously. So naturally, he starts freaking out a little bit and he ends up going to the house and talking to Mrs. Mack. And it's just this like really funny exchange because her father basically tells Mrs. Mack that he doesn't approve of what's going on in the house because there's just like obscene pictures everywhere and obviously like there's alcohol. It's a fucking sorority house, dude. Like chill out. So Mrs. Mack's like, yeah, I'm not sure where she is. Like I assume that she already went home. Meanwhile, Jess goes to see her boyfriend Peter at this conservatory. He's like a piano player and he's practicing for this recital. Um, And she goes to see him and confesses that she is pregnant, but she straight out tells Peter that she has no intention of keeping this baby and she is going to have an abortion. To which Peter's like, absolutely not, sis. Like, I fucking want this baby. What are you talking about? And Jess is like, nah, that's too bad because I'm not going to change my mind. And you can tell that Peter's starting to get really agitated and he's like, okay, you'll see. Like, I'll see you later. This movie is very controversial, like even for today, but especially in the 70s talking about these kind of topics and like, kind of empowering women to show that they have the right to choose what a fucking concept huh so Jess gets back to the house and the phone is ringing yet again so she goes to answer it and this time it's a woman's voice saying Billy um and she keeps saying like weird cryptic shit like where did you put Agnes Billy and she just keeps saying these names Agnes and Billy meanwhile Claire's dad and all of the girls still haven't seen her so he along with Barb and then another sorority sister Phyllis or Phil they all go to the police station to report her missing but you can tell that the police very much are not taking this seriously and just like really don't fucking care like they keep telling her father like oh she probably just ran off with a boyfriend or whatever like she'll show up eventually you know because police in these movies are always absolutely fucking useless so then jess finds out that nobody can find claire and she goes to see claire's boyfriend chris and chris is like i assume that she went home already i have not heard from her so there goes the theory that she's with a boyfriend so chris is fucking pissed and him and jess storm into the police station and they go up to the lieutenant named ken who also is the father from a nightmare in elm street and chris is like why is claire being missing not being taken seriously meanwhile we also see this mother at the police station who was reporting her 13 year old daughter being missing now in between this we're getting shots of peter jess's boyfriend doing his piano audition or recital whatever you want to call it and it's just fucking god awful it literally sounds like it's the first it's this man's first time touching a piano ever Um, So obviously he does really bad, probably because of the news he just got about Jess. And then after the recital, when he obviously fails, we see an image of him completely destroying the piano because he's a big man with big feelings. It's a really pathetic display, honestly. So it's nighttime, obviously still no sign of Claire and Barb, Claire's father, Mrs. Mack and Phil are back at the house and... Barb is super drunk, you can tell, and she kind of looks at Claire's father and it's just like, you think it's my fault, don't you? And like, 
just starts kind of making it all about herself. And everybody looks at her and is like, Barb, you're drunk. Go to sleep. So she goes to bed and Chris and Jess arrive back at the house and they gather the rest of everybody to go out and join the search party because they actually got the cops to do something. But the cops are really doing something for the 13 year old that's missing, whose name is Janice. But regardless, we have Chris, Jess, Phil, and Claire's father go to the search party to search for Janice slash Claire. And Mrs. Mack tells them like, oh, my sister is picking me up for Christmas, so I might not be here when, when you guys get back. So as they leave to go to the search party, we see this like silhouette of a figure just watching the house. So Mrs. Mack is now by herself in the house with the exception of Barb, who is passed out drunk asleep in her bed. And Mrs. Mack is packing. There's a taxi outside waiting for her, but she decides that she's going to go look for her cat and she decides to go look for the cat in the attic. Obviously, she has no idea what's going up there, but we sure fucking do. So she goes up to the attic and the first thing she sees is Claire's dead body. So obviously she panics and she turns and she sees a figure there holding a hook and they just let it go and it impales her. R.I.P. Mrs. Mack, you were a real one. So then we see the taxi driver drive away because they assume she's just not coming out, which she's not because she's fucking dead. And then we also get another POV of the killer. And now he's just angry and screaming and just destroying stuff. And basically the whole theme of this movie is like angry men with big feelings and they don't know how to fucking handle them. So now we go back outside to the search party and we see this girl just start screaming and we never see what she sees, but we see Janice's mother come over and start screaming and crying. So we know that they've now found Janice's dead body. So search party is now over because unfortunately they found Janice dead. So Jess goes back to the house and when she gets in, she hears the phone ringing. So she goes to answer the phone call and it is yet again another one of the obscene phone calls. And this time it is just like yelling grunting they're saying help me they're saying stop me they're screaming billy i know what you did billy so jess obviously now being freaked out because claire is still missing and they just found the dead body in the park right next to their house she decides to call the cops about these phone calls and as she's doing so we see like feet coming down the stairs behind her and we assume it to be the killer but it turns out it's fucking peter and this motherfucker looks at jess and is like oh i was sleeping upstairs that's really fucking sketchy because last i checked this isn't your house motherfucker so Jess calls the cops to tell them about these phone calls that they've been getting. And the cops literally are like, uh, we just had a dead kid show up in the park. So we're really busy. It's probably just a boyfriend playing a joke. Like, you'll be fine. So two themes of this movie so far. Obviously, we already covered the angry men with their big feelings that they don't know how to fucking control. But we also have cops ignoring women as they're asking for help. So then Jess and Peter sit down in the living room. And Peter looks at Jess and is like, I'm quitting the conservatory and we're getting married. Like, that's literally word for word what he says. Like, what a bold-ass motherfucking statement. And Jess, being the boss-ass independent bitch that she is, is like, you can't ask me to give up everything because your plans have changed, and I don't want to marry you, so good fucking try, buddy. So then, obviously, Peter throws an absolute fucking little bitch hissy fit and calls Jess a selfish bitch. And Jess is like, you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. I fucking love her. And Peter tells Jess, you're going to be very sorry, and then storms out of the house. So the lieutenant is the only one that seems to take anybody seriously around here. So he actually shows up to the house to put a tap on the phone because he heard about the obscene phone call. So he tells Jess, you're going to have to keep this guy on the phone for as long as humanly possible the next time that he calls so we can trace this call. And we're going to keep an officer posted outside the house. So you're going to be safe. Don't worry. And then we get a shot of Peter like lurking in the bushes and hiding outside staring at the house like a fucking weirdo. 
So Phil is still in the house and she's just distraught over the whole thing. The poor girl is crying and she decides to go upstairs and go to bed. And now we see some more from the killer's perspective. So we get a flash to Claire's body and we see that she is now holding this like creepy looking doll and she's being rocked in the rocking chair by this killer. And then we also get a POV of Barb sleeping. So we know that the killer is pretty close to her. Meanwhile, downstairs, Jess starts hearing gasping coming from Barb's room and she runs upstairs to see what's going on. And she goes in and it turns out that Barb is just having an asthma attack because she says that she had a nightmare that somebody was in her room or that a stranger came in her room. Like, bitch, that was real. So Jess tucks Barb back in like nothing to see here. And she hears carolers outside at her front door and she goes outside and decides to listen to the carolers. Are carolers a real thing? I've never once in my life seen a group of carolers anywhere. Like I know this was the 70s, but like, was this a real thing or did this just happen in movies? Asking for a friend. Anyway, so Jess is downstairs listening to the carolers and she cannot hear that Barb is being attacked upstairs. That's another theme. Like, shit going on and commotion happening to the point where they can't hear anybody in distress. So anyway, Barb is attacked with a unicorn statue and murdered. And as that's happening, the killer is whispering things like, Agnes, it's me, Billy. Don't tell them what we did, Agnes. And we still have no fucking idea who these Billy and Agnes people are. So the carolers leave and Jess comes back inside and the phone starts ringing yet again. And Jess answers and this time it's whining and it's a voice that sounds like a child's. Now, mind you, when Peter was in the house throwing his little hissy fit, he made a comment to Jess saying like, how can you just remove our our baby like a wart or something like that and now the comments that the person are making on the phone are the exact same so we now know that they've been either listening or it's peter so then he hangs up and jess gets a call from the lieutenant saying like hey that wasn't long enough we're gonna need you to keep him on the phone longer i know that it's upsetting but you gotta do it so the phone then rings again and jess goes to pick up preparing for it to be the killer and it ends up being peter and he's crying now and he's saying help me we can't kill the baby jess blah 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 like blubbering like a fucking pansy bitch so there's a phone set up in the lieutenant's office where he's able to pick up and hear the phone calls so he hears this and he calls jess and is like hey who is this guy and where can we find him because like this doesn't sound right so now he's gonna investigate peter Meanwhile, Phil wakes up and comes downstairs and is like, I can't sleep. And then they're in the kitchen and they see this like random ass guy in the window. They get startled, but it ends up that it's a search party that's looking for the killer that killed this child. And it's these two guys and they're like, okay, like just seeing if you saw anything sketchy tonight. If not, make sure you like lock all your doors and windows. And Barb and or I mean, Jess and Phil are like, oh, great. None of the windows or doors are locked because, you know, it's the 70s. Everybody's free and nobody's killing each other, right? Which is like the weirdest thing to me because this is when serial killers were like the most active. Like there were serial killers running fucking rampant. Like why was nobody locking their shit? Anyway, so Phil goes back upstairs because she wants to check on Barb and we just see her get pulled into Barb's room by an unseen figure and we don't see what happens to her until later. And while that's happening, Jess gets another phone call. So she answers this one and again, it's just like obscene, vulgar comments. They're saying like, you bitch pig. They're screaming for help. They're gagging. Like Billy, where's Agnes again with the names? Meanwhile, we see the lieutenant investigating the conservatory where Peter lives and he sees the broken piano. So he's like, okay, 
obviously this dude's like mentally unstable. This isn't a good fucking sign. So now the lieutenant gets a call from the guy who's tracing the phone calls and he's like, they're coming from the same address. So now they realize that the calls are coming from inside the house. So the lieutenant's like, okay, obviously I'm going to be on my way there right now, but he's trying to call the cop that's like stationed posted up outside the house and he's not answering. So the lieutenant calls his officer Nash at the station and is like, I need you to call this girl Jess and tell her very calmly to walk out of the house. The calls are coming from inside the house, but don't freak her out about it. So Nash calls Jess and is like, I need you to listen to me. You need to walk out your front door and you need to stand outside. But Jess obviously is asking questions. So Nash eventually is just like, the caller is in the house. Get the fuck out of the house, sis. I paraphrase that for dramatic effect, obviously. But Jess is not leaving her sisters behind. So she ends up going upstairs to get Phil and Barb. And she takes a fire poker with her, so at least she goes up armed. But when she enters Barb's bedroom, she finds both Phil and Barb dead. And then she hears these creepy whisperings and she looks up and we get that iconic eye shot. So she looks up at the door and she just sees an eye staring at her through the crack. So fun fact, Bob Clark, the director of this movie, doesn't even remember whose eye that was because like they just had people kind of standing in as Billy for like the POV shots or like the silhouette. And nobody seems to remember whose eye that was. So this eye, this shot that haunted like a whole generation of people who we don't even know who it is. Anyway, so Jess hits him with the door and manages to run away. But when she goes to try and leave out the front door, the front door is now locked. And apparently because it's the 70s, nobody knows how to unlock a door. So she's struggling and can't get it open. And then she decides to run into the basement. So Jess is in the basement by herself. Everything's dark. She's obviously freaking out and she starts seeing the shadow in the window. And the shadow starts looking in the window and starts talking and it turns out it's Peter who then proceeds to break the window in the basement and just lets himself in. Like who the fuck does that? Like what is wrong with this man? So at this point, the lieutenant and another officer have arrived at the house and they find that the cop outside had his throat slashed. So that's why he wasn't answering. So he hears screaming coming from the basement and he breaks down the door and they go to the basement to find that Jess has killed Peter in self-defense. And there's this shot of her just like sitting there almost catatonic as he's laying dead in her lap. So they take her upstairs and they literally sedate her because again, obviously she's in shock and she's catatonic. So they put her to sleep. So Chris and Claire's father are in the room with her and Claire's father at this point like passes out because he's just so in shock because they still have not found Claire's body yet. But obviously he just assumes that she's dead. And the doctor who's in there with Jess is like, okay, we got to get this dude to a hospital. Like, let's go. So they all leave her and a cop comes in and turns the light off because, you know, they're going to let Jess rest. But of course, we can never have a happy ending because everybody leaves and it's dark and it's quiet, but we hear laughing coming from the attic. And we see that Claire and Mrs. Mac's bodies are still up there and have yet to be found. And the killer is still in the house, alone in the house, mind you, with a sedated Jess who cannot defend herself. So it wasn't Peter. Peter was a red herring and basically died for nothing, which I would feel much worse about if he wasn't just like a raging, crazy, angry psychopath. The last shot we see is Claire's dead body from the window from outside and we just hear the phone ringing in the distance. Now, me personally, I always assume that Jess ends up getting killed. I don't think she makes it out. The studio that produced the movie actually wanted a different ending, but Bob Clark, the director slash writer, wanted it to be unclear. He wanted it to be ambiguous, so he kept it this way. As a matter of fact, there was actually supposed to be a sequel, and Olivia Hussey was signed on to reprise her role. So I guess, like, in the Black Christmas world, she actually survives. And she was actually going to come back and now play the house mother of the same sorority. But that never ended up happening because Bob Clark 
ended up tragically dying in a car accident in 2007. In the original script, the murders were actually supposed to be much more brutal than they ended up being, but Bob Clark decided that he wanted to tone it down to be more effective, which personally I think works. Like, I think a lot of the times the unknown is scarier because it leaves your mind to kind of fill in the blanks. Like, I always bring up the famous meat hook scene from Texas Chainsaw. Like, you never see that meat hook go into her, but you feel like you do. The script for this movie was inspired by a series of real-life murders that happened in Quebec, and it was also inspired by the babysitter and the man upstairs urban legend, which When a Stranger Calls is also inspired by. The thing for me that's so scary about this movie is we never find out who Billy and Agnes are, but Bob Clark did come up with a backstory on his own that he revealed, and he said that Billy was abused by his parents and locked in the attic and eventually killed his parents. And Agnes was his little sister that he tried to kill, but she ended up escaping. And obviously, if you've seen the 2006 remake, this was incorporated into that story. And that's exactly what happens. And Black Christmas 2006 is the one that really makes up the lore of Agnes and Billy, which Bob Clark approved of because, again, this was his backstory that he had in mind as well. And the reason that Bob Clark made it the way that he did was because he thought that the less you knew about the killer the less relatable he would be and it was meant to increase fear which I entirely agree with I actually find the idea that we never find out who Billy and Agnes are to be more terrifying than knowing their backstory the 2006 remake that's actually a remake that I do enjoy even though I think the original is much better but like a couple positives that the remake has is just how much more visceral I think it is like the scene where Agnes is eating those motherfucking eyeballs and this like goo comes out and like the cookie cutter out of the skin like that shit is ingrained in my memory forever so obviously yeah it has more of like the gore and the violence and the backstory and it's much more clear but again and I just love the ambiguity of the original Black Christmas. Something I love too, that in the 2006 remake, Mrs. Mack uh, is actually played by the same actress that played Phil in the original Black Christmas. Overall, this movie is just so iconic to me because I think it was just so radical for its time. Like again, it really highlighted the idea that like women can have a choice, but it also was such a commentary on how women are just like not taken seriously because how many times has that happened, especially back in the 70s where women would, would report that they were being stalked or that they were being abused and cops would do absolutely fucking nothing. And Billy's identity being hidden and us never having it explained to us makes it even scarier because it's just like shows that a man could just kill a woman at any time just because he fucking feels like it. So Halloween is obviously iconic and Laurie Strode is usually referred to as like the most iconic final girl. But if you think about it, Jess is the OG final girl. And again, this movie was just so radical and ahead of its time because Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973 and this movie came out fucking swinging about abortion and women's choice and women's rights a year later. Now, the 2019 remake kind of does pick up with that same theme of like women's rights and like how toxic rape culture is and it targets a lot of like sexual assault issues, especially in colleges. But this one really lost me because instead of a, like a Billy and Agnes thing, it ended up being like a whole cult situation, which I think that idea is just so overdone these days. I get what they were trying to do, but that definitely is my like least favorite of all of the Black Christmases. And that's one like the other two I watch annually. I only watched the 2019 version once and I really have no desire to watch it again. So anyway, there you have it. A full breakdown of Black Christmas 1974 which again, I believe to be one of the most iconic horror films ever made. 
And again, that along with Texas Chainsaw Massacre really just like set the formula for your quintessential slasher movie. And the idea of a killer calling you from inside your own house is still an absolutely fucking terrifying aspect, even in this day and age. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next Wednesday, we are going to be talking about another personal favorite of mine being As Above, So Below and going to talk about like a rundown of it and also how it parallels to Dante's Inferno because I think people really don't realize how smart that movie is and how well written it is. So until then, make sure you follow me on TikTok and Instagram. It is horror underscore chronicles. I post on TikTok, especially basically every day. So until next time, watch more horror movies and stay spooky, my friends. (laughs) 